I always tell people there's two ways to increase your golden number or the amount of uh, the amount of money you're saving. You can decrease your expenses or you can increase your income. The beautiful thing about increasing your income is that there's no cap on how much money you can make in a year. There's nothing stopping you from making more money and you don't have to give up your quality of life in order to do so. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Rachel, welcome to the Better Wealth Show. Thanks so much, Caleb. I'm excited to be on. I'm I'm very excited to have you on as well. You've written two very, very well done books. And on this episode, we're going to be focused on your first book that you came out with that I think is a very, very good, very comprehensive um, take from just what, what to do with your money, from anywhere from saving money to paying off debt to investing. And, and making goals and all, the, all those things. And so what, what I'm hoping is that number one, you can share a little bit about your story, a little bit about your background, because you've had a very successful career and are now retired before the age of 30, which is uh, incredible. And then, and then what I'm hoping to do is just dive into the nuts and bolts. I would love my audience to get your book. I know that you're gonna give some free resources away. And I'm just really grateful to learn, grow and be challenged on today's episode. Awesome, me too, let's do it. So, so Rachel, one of the things that I love asking is I love getting context of like, why does someone do what they do? And so obviously it's very clear looking at you that you're not a normal person <laughs> from a, it's like uh, someone doesn't just write books and, and you know, retire um, be way before we're, we're told that we can retire. And so what, what were you like growing up? You know, you know, where did you grow up and what were your parents like? And then when did you decide that you wanted to really be a thought leader in the money space? Yeah, for sure. So I, this is great context. I grew up in a really wealthy County, just to give you an idea. Some of the people in my high school were getting brand new BMWs for their 16th birthday. My family was not operating that way. We were on a strict budget. We weren't going out to eat at restaurants, let alone going on family trips. So at a relatively young age, I felt like I didn't fit in. And that's not the way you want to feel in middle school and in high school. So that kind of started motivating me along the path of learning about financial independence. I remember thinking to myself, I didn't want to end up like everyone else struggling with money. I didn't want to have to operate on a strict budget or borrow money from family and friends to make it to my next paycheck. I wanted to be different. And I realized at a young age that what I did then could either set me up for wealth or for poverty. So I turned into quite the little financial nerd and I still am today, but I started reading everything I could about finance and about compound interest and making money. And I remember reading rich dad, poor dad in high school, which is what turned me on to real estate investing. So it was just very much a passion project for me. And then when I got a little bit older and all of my family and friends started coming to me for financial advice, I realized that there was a, still a big need in the market. So that's when I began teaching others about financial independence as well. And one of the, one of the big epiphanies that you had is like, what was like one of those big concepts that you're like, why don't people know this? Yes. So I had a huge epiphany and I, I used to be a former financial advisor. So that's one of the reasons my family and friends came to me for financial advice when I was in my early twenties. But I also began to think, well, why aren't they reading books or learning on their own? And then I realized, oh yeah, personal finance is boring, right? It's complex, it's intimidating, it's dry. No wonder people don't like to learn about it. 
So I thought to myself, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the idea for my first book, Money Honey, came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's very evident in just reading your book that you, you are very direct. And I think a lot of people like beat around the bush are very like very academic. And it's like, you're not, and that's a compliment, by the way. That's why, <laughs> why you've taken off. Cause I think people are like, I just want someone to speak right to me. What was the book that really turned you on for, for me? It was, um, the richest man of Babylon was the one that like opened my eyes. And then rich dad, poor dad was like that one, two punch was for me, what really got me into this business. Yeah, there were a couple. In sixth grade, I discovered this book called The Motley Fool's Guide for Teens, How to Have More Money Than Your Parents Ever Dreamed Of. And that was my, I was like, okay, cool. This sounds great. That was my first exposure to anything about personal finance. And I just remember light bulbs going off in my head. It was very exciting for me. Um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was great. And then another classic one was The Millionaire Next Door. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about how most rich people live very modestly. And it was such an eye opener for me. I had the pleasure of having Bill Danko on my podcast um, and interviewing him. I have to, I got to share my gratitude and say, listen, the work that you did impacted my life so greatly. And it's crazy to see just the impact that that one book, that one book did and how it directly or indirectly helped so many people realize that this, you don't need to fl- be flashy with your, with your million dollars. And a lot of times the wealthiest people are the ones that we don't think um, are the richest. So that's, um, that's super cool. So let's let's take a let's just take a look at your your book, your first book, Money Honey. And what I what I would love to do is for the people that aren't going to read the book but want to get the big big picture. I think the best way to summarize the book and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like a it's like a comprehensive like you get this, you read the whole thing, you will have an understanding of how to start and how to retire. Is that the purpose? Like, what, what was the purpose of writing this? I know that you you did it in record time. Um, and so I need help for my next book. Uh, I know who to call. <laughs> but like, how did you, like, why did you write this? And and did you learn anything? Or is it one of those things that you just took all the things that you've been teaching and, and compiled it into a book? Yeah, so the purpose of Money Honey is to have a really easy guy that teaches about the basic principles of money management. So I talk about budgeting, savings, debt payoff, investing, taxes, and insurance. Those are the main topics. And then at the very end, I have a seven-step strategy for kind of putting it all together. So how do you go from point A to point B? That's kind of the purpose. And it's really aimed for female millennials or Gen Z or just young people who didn't get the education they needed in high school and in middle school and in college and now are in the real world going like, what do I do with my money? So that's who it's for. Um, so let, let's, let's go over this and, and we'll start with savings and you talk about budgeting and budgeting kind of has a really negative connotation. Um, a lot, it's kind of like the diet. People don't necessarily love to think about budgeting. Um, one thing that I really appreciate about in your writing is you really call out this notion of 10%. I think, I think sometimes we have no clue. We at Better Wealth have a financial model that can show people exactly how much they need to be saving. And by the way, it's always more than 10%. So talk about budgeting, the savings, and any, anything else when you're talking to someone about section number one of your book, what, what comes up? Yeah, I hate this 10% idea, just like you do, because it's my pet peeve that financial gurus are like, oh, you need to save 10% of your paycheck or save 15% of your income. It's like, A, that's probably not nearly enough money. And B, everyone's financial circumstances are different. 
So yes, a single woman making 400 grand a year could probably save 10 or 15% and retire early, but a family of six or a family of four living off of 60 grand a year, saving 10% is just not going to get them where they need to be. So I am glad that we have debunked that. And I, I just tell people always be trying to increase your savings rate. Don't ever be satisfied where you, with where you are. And for myself, when I first graduated college, I tried to save 50% of my income. That's back when I was making $36,000 a year. So I was living off something like 1500 per month. There's no right or wrong answer, but your savings rate is the biggest leverage you have to later on achieve financial independence. So you just need to be focused on, on making that number as big as possible. It isn't. Oh, go on. I was just going to say in Money Honey, I talk about this concept called the golden number, which is your monthly income minus your monthly expenses. So it's how much you're saving each month. And the goal is to always increase that. Mm -hmm. Now, when I teach in workshops, I'll ask people questions and I'll say, hey, if you're trying to save up money quickly, what sorts of things do you do? And often people will say, oh, I'm going to eat out less. I'm going to cook at home make my coffee at home or, you know, stop shopping online. And all those responses are great. Over time, I noticed a common theme there. It's that we are all first and foremost focused on decreasing our expenses, which is crucial. I mean, obviously we need to live within our means. We have to watch our spending, but there's only so much you can do to decrease your expenses. You can't stop paying your car insurance or your car payment and you can't stop buying food. So it's a little bit limited. I always tell people there's two ways to increase your golden number or the amount, of mo- uh, the amount of money you're saving. You can decrease your expenses or you can increase your income. The beautiful thing about increasing your income is that there's no cap on how much money you can make in a year. There's nothing stopping you from making more money and you don't have to give up your quality of life in order to do so. So I always tell people, if you really want to make an impact with your budget and with your savings rate, you will do both decrease your expenses and increase your income. I I love that so much. And it's really the difference between abundance and scarcity. And sometimes, sometimes when we're listening to people like Dave Ramsey, we can kind of get a little bit depressed. It's like, all right, I guess we're going to live on rice and beans for the next 40 years, and then we'll maybe be able to retire. And I love that you talk about that because there's so much opportunity out there. There's so much opportunity and you didn't, you weren't able to retire because you quote unquote, you know, saved more money. You made a whole lot more, more money and your gold number increased. Um, so that, that's, that's really, really fascinating. Is there any like pushback when, when that, when it comes to that, do you find that people when they make more money end up spending more or what is your trick to getting people to continue to, uh, increase their savings? Cause that is, that is very much that one of your pillars is increase your, your gold number. Yes, there, there's pushback. It's, it's hard to make more money and then not spend more money because of lifestyle creep, right? When we get raises and promotions and we start making more money, we feel justified to then spend more money and buy ourselves those nice things that we couldn't afford in the past. And that, like, that feeling is totally valid, by the way. I fall prey to it all the time and I still do. It's hard. But I just tell people it really comes down to delayed gratification. This concept of instant versus delayed gratification. There's a good analogy I like to make when it comes to dieting because the difficulty with dieting and I'm, I'm like a sweet tooth. I'm a chocoholic. I love my sugar and it's hard to 
not give in to that. It's easy to say, oh, one chocolate bar isn't going to make a big impact in the overall scheme of things. So you justify this instant pleasure and this instant gratification, whereas in the long run, those habits are going to add up and, and result in something really unhealthy for you. And you're going to have some consequences. Money is the same thing. It's easy to say, oh, I, I can justify this shoe purchase. You know, I just got a raise or, or this just happened. And I have all the time in the world to save up money. I can start investing later. That's what people kind of think. But when you look at the wealthy people and the people that are achieving financial independence, they probably started at a young age. They started investing soon. They were able to de delay gratification and not give into those purchases and the fancy house and the nice car. They lived modestly so that they could live an amazing life later. And that's the mindset I think we need to adopt. When, when it comes to clarity, when it comes to really seeking first to understand, one of the things that we try to do is really identify what someone actually wants and we, we do that by saying, if money wasn't an issue at all, what would your life look like? Like, what, what is that? And that becomes the metric that we plan on. What is, what is that for you? And then how do you help people get that? Because it's hard to get, like, take money seriously if we don't have that, that goal that we're seeking. So number one, what is your underlying reason why you're so passionate that you're speaking, um, that you get up every, every morning? And then what, how do you help people find that for themselves? Yes, I love what you're saying. It's all about knowing your why and keeping that dream or that motivation in front of you at all times. So for me, mine is a couple of things. First, because I grew up with sort of this scarcity mindset where you know my family was always on a strict budget, I had a lot of fears that I didn't recognize at first. And one of them was the fear of just not having enough money, the fear of not being able to take care of myself or my loved ones if they ever needed it. They say fear can be paralyzing or motivating. For me, it was very motivating. And it's why I've become so ambitious and driven to become financially independent so that I never had to be financially constrained in any way. The other big why is that we are in a financial education crisis. At no point in our lives are we taught how to manage our money. And then we're left as young adults to try to figure it out all on our own. I have seen way too many friends, millennials, Gen Zers, that are dealing with these feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment when it comes to their money. And I find that tragic. That can be easily corrected. So I'm so passionate about just putting financial literacy out there in an easy way to understand. So for me, that's, that's part of my why as well. Uh, Rachel, that's why we get along so well. I appreciate you sharing that um, because I got motivated from fear fear of poverty, ironically, and I would never be on the streets because I have people that love me. But I, I think it just had this deep rooted, like not being able to support my future family. And then that turned into and I, I'll, I'll still be frank, that's still like an underlying thing that I look back on. Um, but it's this underlying like, I'm going to die someday. And I want to have an impact that reaches beyond my life. And what you're doing the work that you've already done uh, is is helping so many people and will outlive your life which is pretty amazing if you think of it. I mean, we could get into a whole t conversation of what wealth truly is. And I think that plays into a definition. So if someone's coming to you and saying, how do I, how do I find out what that thing is for me? Any questions or any statements that you make to them? Yes, there's a few questions you can ask yourself. Number one, if you won the lottery, you know, think $100 million, what would you do at first? Because we have all these plans that we pay off all these people's debts at first. And then the, what would you do later? 
after you've done that initial spending, how would you spend your time? What would your life look like? Another way of looking at that is if money were no object, what would you do with your time? If, if you could quit your job, how would you fill your remaining time? A lot of people have this dream of quitting their job and retiring. And I know it sounds very fancy, but they don't put enough thought into what are they going to do when they retire? I mean, it's, it's more than just wanting to get away from something and wanting to escape the rat race. You really need to understand what are you working towards and what do you want your life to look like if and when you do achieve early retirement? Absolutely. Let's let's talk about debt. This is this is definitely a big subject that comes up. You you have a, a chapter that you said there's no um, good debt. There's only tolerable debt. I think this is where when we first connected, we we could I mean we agreed on majority of things. And this is a question that I had for you. Um, and and I always talk about good debt versus bad debt. I think we're saying the same thing. Why don't you talk about your philosophy as it relates to debt and your advice around that? Yes, for sure. Most debt, like consumer debt, car debt, that type of thing, you are financing a depreciating asset or something that's not even an asset to begin with. So it's it's really tough to then be charged with a 10% or 20% interest rate and get into this vicious cycle. That's where a lot of people are. So I think most debt is bad debt. You want to avoid it. However, there is some, in my opinion, tolerable debt. For example, a mortgage on your primary residence is an example of a tolerable debt because you are building equity over time in that asset and the asset has the potential of appreciating or growing in value. So that's an example. And the main one I see now in terms of knowing how to justify debt or when it's good debt is if you are taking out a loan to then purchase a cash flowing asset or an appreciating asset, those are good investments to make. And so therefore, I think that type of debt is is good or tolerable. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. We we share the same viewpoint of this. I think debt gives people the permission to buy dumb things. I That's mean, a great way of looking at it. Like yeah. is a mortgage, I think it really comes down to two things. You need to decide, should you buy this thing, number one? And a lot of people, we could you could say a mortgage is a tolerable debt. Okay. And you could be in a house that you should not be in. And then mortgage um, really gave you the ability to make that poor financial decision. So we're 100% like if you are if you need debt to get a car, need debt to buy a house, need debt to do certain things, you really need to look at number one, is that should you do that? And number two, you know, the interest in that that comes with that. But there we do have clients that, you know, are doing some strategic things using debt and it's putting more money in their pocket. And so it's it, but it's so difficult because you have a lot, some people that are watching this right now that are in credit card debt, and they're taking, they're holding on to some words that people are saying gurus out there, and it's putting them more in debt. But then you have other people that have like a ton of money and are paying cash for things and might not being most efficient. So do you have? Is there a system that you take people through, or how do you get people to truly understand debt? I know that you recommend the paying off the highest interest rate as far as snowballing that that way instead of the balance which i think is is mathematically more accurate what is what are other strategies that you have around number one identifying the debts that you should that are not good and then and then what is your strategy around making sure that you can get out of bad debt yeah so you hit on a good point already which is when you're looking to buy your primary house or your first house a lot of people will go get a pre-approval from a lender. The lender will say, oh, you're pre-approved for a $450,000 house. And then that person will go buy a $450,000 house. Then 
they get their first mortgage payment and it's like $2,500 and they're like, oh crap, uh, this is really expensive. So a better way to approach the first time home buyer decision is to look at what you can afford from a monthly expense basis first. And don't forget, there's more than just the mortgage payment. There's utilities, there's home maintenance, there's lawn care, there's pest control. So you need to look at what you can afford on a monthly basis and then figure out your purchase price from there. Don't rely on what the lender says. Also, just having this understanding that there, debt isn't always bad. So I know I say there's, there's only tolerable debt or there's only bad debt and tolerable debt. But a lot of people are surprised to find out I'm in a lot of debt. It's debt for all of my rental properties that I own. I don't have credit card debt. I don't have car loans. I don't have student debt. I don't have any other type of debt, but I have mortgages on every single one of my rental properties. And guess what? Those rental properties are bringing in about 10 grand a month per, 10 grand per month in profit. So that's an example of debt that's actually generating additional revenue for me and it's paying for itself. That's just one example. Now, in terms of debt payoff strategies, there's two strategies, okay? So there's the Dave Ramsey method known as the snowball method. This is where you list out all of your debts in order of smallest balance to largest balance. And you aggressively pay off the smallest balance first as quickly as you can. It's great because psychologically it's very rewarding. You get that small, easy debt paid off first and then you're motivated to keep going. So psychologically that can work wonders. Now in Money Honey, I talk about the, what's called the avalanche method. This is where you list out your debts in order of highest interest rate to lowest interest rate. Mathematically, if you pay off your debts this way, you'll be able to pay it off with the fewest amount of dollars possible. So this is the most efficient way and it can make more sense and be more motivating for like, you know, more logical or mathematical oriented people. But I always tell people like, here's my secret. The best debt payoff method is the one that motivates you the most, the one that works the best for you. So pick one and run with it. I love it. Just to recap. So when you're looking at buying a house or any big purchase and you're going to use debt, instead of looking at what a bank will approve you for, look at the payment, start with the end in mind first, which is, man, if people just got that, you're going to help so many people. And there's probably someone like nodding their head and saying, yes, I learned the hard way. Um, and then when it comes to the, you know, paying off debt, find a strategy that best um, works for you. And, and the, the two ways, the, the way that you write in your book is, is mathematically the fastest way. But if, if you need that, uh, that uh, you know, emotional encouragement, maybe doing it the, you know, the taking a little bit more time and actually executing on it is going to be far better than the most efficient way. We, we, we talk at Better Wealthy, there's the difference between efficiency and optimization. And efficiency might be the mathematical best thing. But if it keeps you up at night, if it doesn't help you show up powerfully, if you don't actually get it, you're, you shouldn't do the most efficient way. You should do the way that best works for you. And optimization is taking your situation, it's taking what you want and making you better with your resources and what, what you want to be uh, the reality. And so it's just, it's just it's something that I've had to learn is when I first got into this, I wanted to do like the best mathematical way. And if you didn't do it, you were wrong. And I've had to take the humble pill and say, no, the best way is what works best for the client. And so you, you, you said that so well. Is any, any way to identify good, good debt versus tolerable debt? Like, is there a way to, you look at the interest rate, you look at, is this asset, is it an asset versus a liability? What, what's your advice on that? 
Yeah, I, I kind of play off the interest rates. So there's an example I give in Money Honey where you know a couple is looking at buying a painting and this painting could appreciate in value, but they don't have enough money to buy it. Now, this is, this is a, a weird example because you can never predict how something's going to appreciate. So at the end of the day, if this painting appreciates 3% per year, and they can take out debt for 2% per year, that would be good. They have a little bit of arbitrage there. They're gonna have that 1% spread. On the other hand though, if the painting is appreciating 2% a year and they're taking out you know, credit card debt where they're gonna have to pay 15% of year in interest, which is more often what happens, that is an example of really bad debt. They're overall, they're gonna be losing money on that. I never, pretend like I can predict the appreciation on anything. I never really rely on the appreciation, but it's, it's easier to look at something like a rental property and know that you're going to have a certain ROI based on the cash flow, And that in that circumstance, your mortgage will not only be paid for by your tenants. So your debt's going to be taken care of, but then you're also going to be making money as you go. So I like to kind of just look at the interest rates and see what the spread is and if it makes sense. What do you say to the the overly optimistic person that wants to be an entrepreneur and that will tell you, Rachel, my business is going to double this year, has no track record, and is justifying putting credit card debt into starting? Like, what do you oh, do? You, what do you say? Because quite frankly, this comes up a ton, and mathematically, it's great. But again, you're you're making an assumption that your business is going to double, where majority of businesses don't even succeed. First of all, I have yet to find a scenario where I can justify credit card debt. There is, there is no justification ever of credit card debt because you're going to be paying 20 to 25% interest on that. How can you possibly, how is that possibly a good thing? With a, someone starting out with a business, so your example, here's what I always tell them. You need to run two scenarios. You need to run what you think is going to happen, what you're predicting to happen, and then run a worst case scenario. What's gonna happen if you go into credit card debt or take out a huge personal loan to start your business and then sales are only 10% of what you predicted? What's gonna happen if there's a recession or a pandemic and you have to shut down your business and you're in tens of thousands of dollars of debt? So that's what I always tell people. You don't have to go into debt to start a business. I launched my book, Money Honey, with less than $600 and my business grew organically from there. So I would say, avoid debt, look for ways to do it with, without putting this enormous expense into it up front. And by no means should you ever take out credit card debt. Rachel, thank you so much for that. If, and I echo everything that you're saying. If you're, if you're justifying something by using credit card debt, really, really check, check your ego at the door. And I, because I've seen for every one success story, I've seen a hundred really, really poor stories. And, and so thank you for that. The other thing I'll just touch on, and you were the first person to bring this up, and I think it's really, really well stated. We have to be very careful about appreciation because I'll just go back to your painting example. And this is a very common with the house. People are like, house always goes up in value. Okay, but it only you only realize that if you sell. So you could even play the game of like, my painting is going to appreciate at 5%, but what if you never sell the painting? Then, okay, you have this valuable thing that will happen, like go into your estate but you still like the, the importance of cash flow is so key because a debt is a drag on cash flow and it can be very justifiable if you're you're paying $10 and bringing in 190, right? 
but it, it can be very tough if you're paying ten dollars and you have this funny money of appreciation. And so it's it's it it's, doesn't make it right or wrong. It just I find a lot of people um get that mixed up. They look at they look at certain growth numbers, but they never um they never realize that on their financial model or their life because they never want to sell, which is fine. But then we just have to know that it's kind of a funny number. Yeah, I agree. And there's there's like a psychological word for it, but there's this tendency that we have as human beings to overstate something or to overestimate or think that something we own is worth more than it is. So you need to factor that in when you're running any sort of projections or making any financial decisions is that there's always this bias of that we think things are going to be better than they are. That's why I tell someone run the worst case scenario and make a decision based off of that. Love it. Let's talk about investing. And this this is something that I also want to like challenge you on slash ask a question is when you talk about investing, I find that a lot of people do not seek the end in mind. So we, we talk about accumulating money, but, but you talk about in your book that these, this kind of, you know, accumulate money strategy might not be the best strategy for, for someone to actually retire because of how our economy works and the, you know, safe withdrawal rates and all the low interest rate environment. And so talk to, talk to us about your philosophy about investing with the end in mind. And this is, again, something that I'm, I'm so grateful that you're talking about because I think a lot of people just, just say, go get a good rate of return. And they're not, they're not translating that into what does that actually look at re in retirement? Yes, this is a um, great topic to talk about because a lot of us have ideas of how much we need to save in order to retire. But the thing is, it is impossible to estimate that number because we don't know the day we're going to die. We don't know when we're going to die. We could retire and die a year later, or we could retire and die 40 years later. So to try to predict like the amount of money you're going to need to fund your retirement, that's very, very hard. It's actually something I refer to in my second book as the nest egg theory. Yep. It's this theory of working your whole life, doing your nine to five, investing money. And then hopefully by age 65, you have enough that you can live off of for the rest of your life. The problem with this, there's a lot of problems, is not only can we not predict this, but this is a lot harder to do in this day and age. We, for example, this is very alarming. The Social Security Trust Fund is projected to be fully depleted by the year 2034. That is less than two decades away. So people our age can't even rely on social security to be there. Also, pensions are pretty much a thing of the past. Um, the cost of college has ballooned, placing an enormous burden on our generation. So there's all these different factors making this whole nest egg theory very hard to attain. I've read recently different research and statistics saying that millennials will need to accumulate at least $2 million by age 65 in order to retire. That is nothing to sneeze at. That's a lot of money. I don't know many multimillionaires. So to, to think about saving up that amount is very intimidating. So to me, this idea of passive income and cash flowing your retirement makes a lot more sense. Passive income is an income stream that you earn with little to no work. A really popular example of this is like dividend income from your portfolio investments. Once your passive income exceeds your living expenses, you're retired, you're financially independent. And I think it's a lot more attainable to go after, you know, creating five or eight or 10 grand a month in passive income than it is to save up $2 million by age 65. So that's what I always encourage people to focus on when they're investing. Yes, use it to build up wealth in the long term. 
but also learn how you can start generating income from your investments that you can draw off of so you can retire. That, that, uh, that, that concept became really real for me when reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then going through all of his books. And he very much talks about assets being that thing that puts money back in your pocket and you're financially free when you have enough passive income coming in without, you know, that's like spent, um, covering your expenses. And that, that for me, I agree with you. It's like, okay, that is so much more attainable than this idea, this hope, I hope strategy of like, I'm just going to accumulate money and hope that that uh, something good happened. So what is your advice then on, on 401ks, IRAs, because you have, you write a lot about, you know, uh, and even in your seven steps, you talk about a minimum uh, contribution. And I love that because it's like, we need to save, we need to invest. What is your thoughts on that? Has that changed since writing this book? Or are you still very pro uh, 401ks, IRAs and, and all that? Yeah, definitely very pro retirement account. I mean, this is one of the best tools for saving up for your retirement. You have tax advantages. There aren't any other accounts like this where you can invest and have these tax advantages. So I think it's a really important tool to utilize. The only caveat is if you are aiming to retire early, like I did, then you have to be a little bit more strategic about where you put your money because you can't access those funds until you're 59 and a half or you shouldn't because of the penalties and taxes. So you need to be thinking about, okay, well, how much should I put in retirement versus maybe a normal taxable investment account? But with retirement and saving for retirement, my best advice is to save consistently. Save as much as you can early on because time is your biggest advantage. And with a lot of 401ks, employers will offer, offer you a match where if you contribute 3%, they'll match that first 3%. And some people make the mistake of not contributing to that and not getting that employer match, but that employer match is free money. It is literally free money that is given to you. So if you have a 401k and you have an employer match, make sure you are contributing at least enough to take full advantage of that. Absolutely. And, and I think there's, I think that there's something to say about making your savings automatic. Um, and, and there's a lot of people that just don't do that. And one, one of the things that we talk about is really having the end in mind and, and investing your money in something that will help build that reality. So for you being so young, when you retired, what were, what were some of the things that you, I don't want you to go into all the detail, but what, what were some of the things that you did that has been working for you? Well, um, I know that you do a lot of real estate. Do you recommend, like, how do you recommend people go into that? Cause I know that that can also be like real estate can be good. And my one critique for Robert Kiyosaki is he makes real estate this like amazing thing, but you and I both know that it's not just that easy. So how do you help people that want to retire before 65, don't want to do the nest egg strategy. They're doing their minimum contributions to their 401k and IRAs and they're maximizing that side. What other asset classes do you recommend someone invest in? There are all different ways to make passive income. And in my second book, I talk about like 28 different ways to make passive income. So trust me when I say there's something out there for everyone. Real estate is definitely one of my favorites, but if it scares you or if you're not willing to do it because you don't want to be a landlord, that's fine. There are other ways to achieve this. I do think rental properties is one of the best ways to achieve financial independence because you have so many different financial benefits. You have the cash flow or the passive income. You have the equity buildup. You have tax deductions and tax benefits and potential appreciation. And if you look at the millionaires that have been made in, in history, a more average men and women have been made millionaires through real estate than through any other avenue. So I think it's definitely something you should consider. 
but there are other passive income streams. For example, my husband and I are living off of 15 grand a month in passive income, and that consists of several different things. About 10 grand of that is from our rental properties, our profits from our rentals. I'm also making about four or five grand a month from royalties from my two best-selling books. I'm making another four or five grand month grand a month from uh, royalties from my online course that I sell. And then we have other passive income streams as well. So if you're somebody that has a unique gift, a unique voice you can offer, or you have content you can share in a unique way, you can turn that into a passive income stream, like a book or an online course. So there are definitely tons of options out there. Do you believe that the, the people are their greatest asset? Like, do you believe that a lot of people undervalue themselves and as a result, everything else in their life is kind of a mirror to that? Oh, a hundred percent. I undervalued myself when I first started writing Money Honey because I thought to myself, I'm not Dave Ramsey. I'm not Susie Orman. Who am I, a young woman, to write a book about personal finance? Who am I? So there was a lot of imposter syndrome with that. But at the end of the day, and this happened much later, but I realized that I can speak to female millennials in a way that Dave Ramsey just can't. Yeah. I have a unique gift. I don't have to be the number one expert. Yeah. I have a unique gift that I can share. I, I love that. And, and it's so evident in just how articulate you are and how passionate you are about the subject. Um, let's talk about taxes. And I mean, look at what's going on in our country right now. We are printing money like crazy. I know that you've made references to the U.S. debt clock. And it, it's hard for me to be perfectly like, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think it's it, taxes are going to go up with the new administration. And then big picture wise, do you believe, where do you believe taxes will be in our country in the next 10, 15, 20 years? I don't know if you comment on that at all, but that's a big, that's a big question that comes up. And a lot of people in our community have questions about it. And it's, there's, their answers vary. How would you address that? I 100% agree with you. If you look at the government's debt, it is increasing exponentially. And that means only one thing is going to happen. Taxes will increase. It's just, it's just a fact at this point. Taxes will have to increase in the future to be able to continue to fund and pay off that debt. So that's actually one of the reasons that I prefer investing in Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks, because with a Roth account, you're paying taxes now, and then you're not paying taxes later on the earnings or withdrawals or contributions. So I would much rather, if, if I have this knowledge that taxes are only going to go up in the future. I would much rather pay taxes now while they're potentially lower and get it out of the way. Yep. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think more people need to be taking advantage of the Roth IRA. I, I, I agree. I, if, if you could pay tax on the seed, much rather do that um, because I think majority of people that want to be financially successful shouldn't, I think all of us are on the same page as they're going, maybe tax will be lower in the future. But I highly doubt it. And I would much rather take responsibility and and grow that wealth, um, you know, with with special tax advantages for the future. Can we jump into your seven your seven steps before before this? I mean, it's crazy how time flies. You've given <laughs> so much. You've given so much value across the board from just like how to goal set, how to do budgeting, um, how to, good debt versus bad debt, and and I thought you I thought that section was incredible, by the way. And then investments and and I cannot wait by the um, to interview you on your other book about passive income because Thank I think you. that really needs to be the conversation going forward because if it, it can be very disheartening to look at money and do the nest egg scenario and you and I are speaking the same language 
is we need to be seeking passive cash flow yes. and and income and and so but it's a good thing that we didn't try to do both books and one. <laughs> <laughs> I know we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> so so seven steps. Yes. I, I let's let's you know wrap this up in the next ten minutes of like if you had to walk people through. Okay, you read my book, which everyone should go support Rachel, get her book. Um, but let's let's talk about seven steps and how someone can go from step one to seven. Yeah. So, and they're not all going to make sense unless you've read the book, but I can at least give you a taste of starting out. What are they going to be? So step number one is to know your current story for a lot of people sitting down and taking a look at their finances is a really, really scary thing. You know, ignorance is bliss. So that's how a lot of us operate. And that's how I used to operate. But once you sit down and you understand here's my monthly spending, here's my after-tax income, my golden number, my assets, my liabilities. I promise you, you will feel so much better because knowing and understanding will give you a sense of relief. So you just have to figure out like, where am I today? What's my point A? Step number two is to figure out your point B. Where do you wanna go? So you really need to brainstorm your financial goals. How much income do you wanna be making? How much do you wanna be saving? Things like that. And even in this part, you can brainstorm your why. What's your motivation? What's your deep down instinct and reason for why you wanna be doing this? And then step three, and I'll kind of stop here because I think the other ones are more about the book, but step three is to um, know your golden number and grow your golden number. So you already know what it is. Now it's back to how can I decrease my expenses or increase my income so that I'm continually growing my golden number. This is a goal that is never ending because it will always be possible to increase your golden number over time. So I'm never satisfied if I, if I started at 500 and I grew my golden number or my monthly savings to $1,000 per month, I'm never reaching an end goal. I'm always, okay, what's next? How can I decrease my expenses or make more money so that I can save more? So those are kind of the first three steps. And then it kind of gets into the savings buckets and step seven ends us with, ends with completing an annual review. Yep. Because it's easy for us to have this initial momentum and enthusiasm and we want to get our finances in order. And so we start off strong, but then we fizzle out after a few months. Totally. So there are certain things I track each month, like my monthly spending, income, expenses, and my net worth. And then I'll do an annual review with my husband each year where I just take a good hard look at everything and re-strategize and recommit. I love that. And one of the one of the places that I want all my listeners, whether you're on YouTube or whether you're listening to this on a podcast to go to is is www.moneyhoneyrachel.com slash free. And you have been so kind to offer a lot of these free um, budgeting and, and, and resources for my audience. But I want to just go over the clarity piece because 100% agree with you on this. Majority of people don't know, don't have a clue where they're at. And so if, if you don't know what you're spending monthly, what your current um, after-tax income is, and I'm taking this from your book, by the way, <laughs> um, your golden number, if you don't know your liabilities, if you don't know your assets, if you, if you don't know your net worth, if you don't know the details on your debt, if you don't know the details on your retirement accounts, like do the work, work with somebody that can help you, first of all, get clarity on where you're at. Because I'm telling you, if you don't know where you are in life, like it's, there, you will, you'll be, being able to take advantage of. And there, there's just so many distractions that happen if you don't know who you are. But then also the ability to make the goals and really know where you want to go. Like that is that one-two punch is so, so evident. And then I love how you really um, talk about savings and 
growing that golden number um, because that is I, I think of savings as as that that fuel that really makes what we want to a reality. And that I think is I think that needs to be talked about more. I mean, Robert Kiyosaki says that savers are losers. But what I love about what you're talking about is you need to save money, but then not don't be so passive with it. Take that money and multiply it and create passive cash flow and ultimately live the life that you want to live. And and again, I, I highly, highly recommend people go take time, go get money, honey. Um, and and then do 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 me a favor by giving Rachel a review on Amazon. I know that just means so much to a world uh, where a lot of your opportunities come from your your book. So Rachel, anything else that you want to share about your book and about this time? I mean, I really appreciate you spending time with us. Yeah, thank you. I just want to kind of leave with some inspiration. Um, a lot of people count themselves out of making progress financially because it's too late or they're too old or they're not making enough money. And I assure you that you can do this no matter your income or your age. I started out making 36 grand. I wasn't a trust fund baby. I didn't have family members that were helping me fund my investments. I really did it all on my own. So I do encourage you don't count yourself out. You have time to do a 180 and turn your life around. And as Zig Ziglar said, you don't have to be great to start. You have to start to be great. I love it. I, I absolutely love it. Hopefully I didn't steal your thunder because we ask one last question on the Better Wealth Show. Ooh, what and is it? it? <laughs> question. And so this is, this is, I've had people cry during this time. So if this is your last day on earth, and you are with the people that you love the most. Of all the things that you learned, let's let's put your money here. It's your family, your friends, relationships, all those things. What would you articulate in that last conversation? You can't take anything with you. You can't give anything that you've created other than this conversation. What would you share with the people that you love the most? Um, I would just, it's this realization that money doesn't have anything to do with the, what's most important to us. If I write out my 10 most important things in my life or the 10 things that bring me the most fulfillment, it's my family, it's my friends, it's my dog, it's hiking. Those things don't cost money. So at the end of the day, your money has nothing to do with your worth. Your love and your relationships, that has to do with your worth and how fulfilled you are. Rachel, there's a reason why we're good friends. <laughs> how can people stay connected with where um with who you are how can they support what you're doing and any key websites that they should be going to yes thank you so both of my books money honey and passive income aggressive retirement are on amazon in ebook paperback and audiobook and again if you want to download those free budgeting worksheets just go to moneyhoneyrachel.com slash free i would love a review and i know caleb would love a review on his podcast as well so please leave him one Thank you so much. And guys, stay tuned for our next episode where we talk about passive cash flow income. It's going to be amazing. Rachel, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And I hope you have an amazing 2021. Thanks so much. You too, Caleb. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.